Hello, this is Hardin Coleman, faculty director for the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. You're listening to the very first season of Caring, Character, and Community, the Center's podcast. In this season, we will focus on learning from leaders about how they integrate the ethic of caring, they focus on their own and others' character development, and a commitment to serving the needs of the community in order to guide and inform their leadership decisions in times of crisis. A major part of the CCSR's mission is to facilitate conversations among educators, community organizers, and engaged citizens around the challenges of creating conditions in our schools and communities that will allow all our children to flourish. This is part three of our inaugural season, which will focus on bringing you the perspective of four youth-serving community-based organizations. In today's episode, we are, we are delighted to have uh, Mozak Hakaban, who has served as the executive director of Boston's Higher Ground since June 2011. Prior to serving at Higher Ground, he worked for 33 years at Urban Edge, a recognized leader in community development corporations in the Northeast. One of the projects on which Mozak is deeply engaged is building a coalition with Boston Public Schools to eliminate homelessness for children one school at a time. His work his, he is working on expanding this approach across the Commonwealth. Mozik, thank you for spending time with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your organization and how this past year has been for you. So Boston's Higher Ground was founded in 2010 uh, by Hubie Jones, a uh, very well-known longtime leader in Boston and community activist and uh, academician and, uh, you know, started dozens of community organizations, service organizations, and he was concerned that there were lots of resources in Boston, but uh, we had uh, outcomes and um, outcomes were not getting any better for children and families in Boston's neighborhoods. So starting in 2008, he convened uh, Every couple of months, he convened a meeting of uh, about 30 or 40 practitioners, policymakers, government, philanthropy, and asked the basic questions, are you satisfied with what you see in Boston? And if not, are you willing to do something different? So those conversations eventually led to the creation of Higher Ground as a convener organization. Um, We sort of somewhat facetiously say, we don't do anything, we just get other people to do things together better. Um, We are a very small organization. Sometimes I've been the only staff person. We're currently the largest we've been at five and a half FTEs. And we are finally, after 10 years, facing substantial growth and potential, depending on resources, in terms of scaling up our work, both in the Homelessness Initiative and in another coalition we're coordinating, uh, Surround Care Coalition, uh, which uh, we're also pleased as part of the Open Opportunity Massachusetts Statewide Initiative committed to education equity. So uh, that's a very quick history of uh, how Higher Ground came about. Uh, And just to say we started out, uh, oh, before Higher Ground was founded, Professor James Jennings did an analysis of Boston's neighborhoods and came up with a a sort of a distress, neighborhood distress index and mapped that across Boston and showed that the neighborhoods in the Blue Hill Corridor from Dudley Square to Mattapan Square were the ones with the highest distress. So Higher Ground started with the notion of focusing on that corridor and we started at the Dudley Square end of it and our offices 
are located close to just south of Dudley Square at the MLK Warren Street uh, intersection. We share offices with Center for Teen Empowerment. Um, and uh, that was sort of the beginning of our very collaborative nature and of existence. And everything we do is with others. And um, my experience at the Urban Edge was good training because you don't do affordable housing and community development alone. So yeah. um, I've had lots, I've had three decades of practice in collaboration and um, uh, it was a natural fit for higher ground. Well, this, this past year has been a very complex one for us all, actually past almost two years now. So I'm wondering for higher ground and, and particularly your work uh, as you try to build these networks and coalitions, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced? Well, it's certainly been a challenge not to work with people in person. In fact, about a year ago, uh, we started hiring, we hired three people in the last 12 months uh, virtually, and I didn't meet them in person for four, five, six, seven months. Uh, so a lot of our work happened and continues to happen remotely. Uh, so while the challenge has been not to be there in person, there's been some opportunities in terms of uh, uh, using technology to be able to communicate, do things digitally, do intake forms for our homelessness initiative online. And, you know, uh, what we lose in not having in-person contact, we save in travel time. I mean, probably we're each, we're each saving two hours of travel time a day. And uh, that allows us to either spend more time on our personal needs and families or put more time into work. So, and, you know, despite the challenges, I think we've had probably more participation through Zoom at uh, parent meetings, parent-teacher meetings, uh, staff meetings, collaborative meetings, coalition meetings. So I'm not sure that uh, after the pandemic is over, uh, we will ever go back to the way things were, especially yeah. since a lot of our work is in the schools. We are seriously considering having sort of a... Uh, um, kind of distributed system of where our locations are. I mean, this summer we did a summer learning academy at one of our schools and our staff was basically at the school all the time. And uh, if we can figure out an arrangement where schools can spare some space for us to have a place to work, uh, we can spend part of the time in the schools, part of the time at home, part of the time at a smaller office. So it remains to be seen um, if we can turn this challenge into a great opportunity going forward, which with increased uh, engagement by all our partners and parents and children. Yeah, I agree. Certainly at the school district, we have found uh, for meetings, there's much more parent participation when they had the access to Zoom and they had, instead of having to come into the bowling building at night when they have other responsibilities, they can be available and, and be engaged. Uh, which is, you know, which is what's exciting and, and, and comes with its cost as well. But, you know, the, one of the questions I'd like to ask you um, is how does, from where you sit, how does issues of, of, of care, the ethic of care and being caring uh, serve your leadership and how does that kind of guide some of your leadership decisions? So I think one of the things that the, uh... Uh, by the way, Professor James Jennings recently did a 10-year case study of our first decade, which was a very helpful exercise for us to reflect on where we have been. I think one of the great accomplishments uh, we feel and James Jennings uh, documented is that we've, level, we've built a great, uh, very high level of trust 
uh, with parents, with teachers, with principals, uh, with the BPS superintendent, with the teachers union, with the community. So uh, not that we don't have issues or disagreements, but overall, I think we are a very trusted uh, community partner and intermediary. And, um, you know, when people can't reach anybody else, they know they can reach us. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes uh, we hear things from the schools where you would think they might figure that out internally, but we're sometimes an easier communication link with whoever they're trying to reach. So I think the I think the trust level is probably the key thing that we have in terms of caring for the families we're trying to support and house and stabilize, in terms of the uh, enrichment programs we're trying to bring to the schools so that they can improve their uh, outcomes for the kids. And uh, I think some of it has to do with, I mean, some of that trust has, uh, that trust has had a lot to do with us being able to bring together many partners, uh, seven partners in the homelessness case and 20 partners in the, um, in the Surround Care Coalition, uh, where we're raising funds on behalf of the coalitions, we're sharing funds. Uh, and by the way, the, you know, nonprofits have this uh, critique of they're always competing with each other for resources and they don't do things together. I've seen the opposite. You know, we are working very well together. People are happy to, happy to support each other. We're happy to share resources and um, I can visibly see a system change in progress. I mean, I can't see it physically, but I can, I can see it developing in the teamwork across many organizations. So I think the, when folks see that kind of collaboration among the folks who say we're trying to help them, they have more confidence that uh, in fact, we do care and we're not just, we're not just talk that we're working together and we're, we're supporting each other and we're supporting the families. We're all there to help. The two things you said that, 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 you know, and, and you kind of, I was going to ask, well, how do you develop that trust? And two things you said, I want to make sure that those are the, some of the pillars, there may be others that I missed, but one is accessible, consistent accessibility. That when people reach out to you, you are open. They can trust. They they look forward, and you can and you you follow through on that accessibility. And the other is a value of collaboration. That they're not just coming for you to be the fixer, and you for the resources you bring. But part of that is saying how how can I take lift up your issues and bring it to this community of collaboration, which is focused on success. And those two things consistently done develops trust and what you're suggesting is being trusting is an act of care. No, I think that's correct. Uh, I mean, I, I try, no matter how busy I get, I try to be responsive to uh, uh, folks calling within the same day or within the same hour. Uh, I'm an I'm a, a early riser uh, and I'm available all the time to anybody who who's trying to reach me. And if I find out that our staff has not responded quickly enough, uh, that's my first critique. And, you know, make sure you don't just make a call or send an email or send a text and then uh, uh, just wait because nobody answers. Uh, call again, call twice a day, call call the next day uh, yep. so that people know that you're paying attention. Otherwise, you send an email, you don't hear back and you don't uh, follow up. We're just another bureaucrat. And uh, yep. it's really important for us to respond. And the collaborative nature, I think, is... 
Again, it's not surprising to me because both at higher ground and at the urban edge, this is what we did. Um, and I'm, I'm just inspired by the level of collaboration that exists across so many organizations. Now, some of us have been working together, you know, in pairs or threesomes for the last 10 years. So yep. part of what brought us all together is because we've had that experience together, many of us, and some of us just joined recently, but they're joining something that's already in progress. Uh, yep. So I think both of those are key to Higher Ground's uh, progress to date. So in that, what are some of the big challenges you face? I mean, that, 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 you know, that, that's hard work to be accessible, to collaborate, to reach out, to constantly be, you know, quick returns. You know, I have a lot to learn from you on that. Um, and, and, but how, what are the challenges that you've faced? And where has sometimes where that may not work so well? So um, I think as successful as we have been to collaborate with partners and with the schools and with BPS and with the teachers union, with the community, there are times that while we think we're offering help to a school, which may be overwhelmed even before COVID, uh, my experience before COVID was where we went to one of our partner schools and offered something, unless there was immediate benefit with little or no effort on their part, they just didn't have time for it. Yep. And uh, I understand that. And from time to time, we have to remind ourselves that when we're very busy, if somebody comes to us and says, I want to help you do this or that better, we don't have time for them because we're up to our, our necks. So so I, we, I think the challenge is, Everybody is, even before COVID, but especially since COVID, everybody's flat out and exhausted. And um, mm -hmm. finding the energy to do one more thing uh, uh, and collaborate without knowing what the result will be and how long it'll take, I think is a challenge. Now, again, the solution is to be always available, always present, so that uh, when, uh, when you get the call back from a principal, for a teacher, from a parent, you're able to respond and you can pick up where you left off. So, so I think the, um, I mean, I, I guess, I don't know if I can articulate this well enough. We're trying to change a system that's been going on for decades, if not longer. So people are used to a certain way of being. For example, one of the things we're trying to do is to mobilize parent voice in all decisions yep. that affect their children. Well, parents are not used to being heard they are used to being told what's going to happen. And again, the intention is to hear them, but in practice, that doesn't happen. So, um, you know, my best uh, uh, recent example, I mean, I have a couple of, but the one that you might recognize is when we were working with the Higginson Elementary School uh, a few years ago, one of the things they said, and we noticed is that they didn't have a playground. They had two sheets of asphalt the kids got hurt every day going out to play. And uh, so we uh, worked with the parents and the teachers and applied for a community preservation grant of $500,000. Um, and in order to get that grant, uh, we encouraged the, first of all, the students did their own designs of what they wanted. The parents met with an architect who helped them do a schematic design to secure the grant. And then they came to school committee meetings, and I'm sure you might remember that uh, for five school committee meetings in a row, 
Parents testified, teachers testified, the children themselves testified and held up their designs. And some parents from other schools testified on behalf of this school. And eventually BPS supported the grant. We got the grant, the playground is operating. And now it's a great resource after the pandemic because the kids can go out and play safe. Yep. So that was a very good example to the parents that their voice does matter. Uh, and but uh, but it's it, so that's one thing we're very focused on. We have in the Saran Care Coalition, we have a parent teacher advisory group that meets every month. And uh, although we spent a lot of time developing the plan and we got a grant from Children's Hospital to implement it, we said from the beginning, this plan is only as good as it meets the needs of the schools and it meets the needs of the parents and the teachers. So although we meet with the principals regularly, we meet with the superintendent and the BTU president regularly, the monthly meeting with the parents and the teachers are key to us making the necessary adjustments to make sure the plan is responsive to what's needed. And what's needed changes from month to month and year to year. So we have to be nimble enough to adjust with them. So I think in that sense, uh, that level of engagement is both difficult and time consuming, but it continues to build confidence that uh, uh, we are a, we're an available, accessible, trusted partner and they can count on us. And it seems that is, it, is that is that personalism that 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 reaching out, being available in a local context, is the driver of success for you. Um, so in that, how do you think? But then also, you're very active in building a larger community, a, a Commonwealth-oriented. Uh, one of the things that we're associated with this this thriving uh, families approach, uh, which we're thinking about going across the Commonwealth. How, how do you how do you imagine this? kind of localism and high touch and expanding the size of the network. How does that work? So I think it was helpful that I had the experience at Urban Edge before I came to Higher Ground because Urban Edge is a community development corporation focused in a particular neighborhood, you know, Jamaica Plain Roxbury. There's about 25 community development corporations in Boston and about 60 or 70 in the state. Mm -hmm. So each one is focused in a particular place and it, it's, they make it their business to support affordable housing, economic development, um, open space development, job training, home buyer services, whatever is needed in that community. But we also, or the CDCs, uh, are connected to each other through a Boston uh, com committee and a statewide association. So we're, you know, many, many, many times the CDCs are doing things together uh, and collaborating. Uh, so while they are focused in a particular place, they're part of a system or a network that has developed over the last, say, 50 or 60 years. And it's, it's made Boston and Massachusetts one of the most effective places in the country in terms of community development and affordable housing. So I'm basically following that experience and saying, as you know, uh, as part of Thriving Families of Open Opportunity Massachusetts, we're not talking with uh, Lawrence about helping them launch a homelessness, homelessness, student homelessness initiative in Lawrence. And we've made some initial contacts with folks in Worcester about helping them do the same. We don't intend to go to Worcester or we don't intend to go to Lawrence. We intend to use our experience, share our lessons so that they don't have to spend two years planning before they launch their program. And we have a meeting scheduled, a Zoom meeting scheduled next week with about 10 or 12 people from Lawrence, 10 or 12 people from our coalition in Boston for us to share what we have learned, 
what they might want to adopt. And as you know, we have jointly applied for a grant that if we get it, uh, that grant will help Lawrence launch its initiative with us providing some help. But we see ourselves, and, and by the way, on the homelessness front, having finished a three-year pilot phase in seven schools, we're now scaling up to 20 schools in Boston. And here too, what we've said to each of the schools that we're adding, if you have a partner that you're working with right now who can do what Higher Ground and its other nonprofit partners have been doing, let us talk to them. Maybe they can do some of the work. We don't necessarily have to go to all over the city, to Charlestown or East Boston or Austin Brighton. Uh, if, they're, if they have a partner that can do some of what we're doing, we can share the lessons, we can be a resource. And ideally what will happen over time is there will be a citywide and statewide distributed system of practice uh, of whether it's homelessness or enrichment programs, whatever it is that's needed in that particular community, that there's a local coalition that has learned how to address those needs in that particular community. So that's the, that's the theory. Uh, we're, beginning, we're beginning this year to uh, see if we can implement it, and I'm very optimistic that we will, assuming we can, get the, we can generate the resources uh, both look in citywide and statewide. Yeah, yeah. So one one of the questions I like to to ask a little, a little shift is, what do you, how do you think of the word we use this word character, and we talk about our own character, developing ourselves and developing character in others. What part of the uh, focus on character is part of the work you do, either for yourself or for the or with the people with whom you work? So one of my favorite quotes from my high school English reading was. Uh, uh, from Hamlet, uh, this above all to thine own self be true and it shall not, it, it shall follow like the night to day that you can't not be false to any man. And uh, I've always felt like telling the truth as you know it. And obviously the truth is different for different people, but the best you can do is be true to yourself. And uh, even if that's sometimes uncomfortable. So uh, from an early age, I've kind of develop the capacity to be, to tell the truth and to take the consequences. And it's not always been pleasant because sometimes people don't want to hear it. They'd rather paper over whatever is going on. So I think, and, and, and both at Urban Edge and at Higher Ground, uh, both on a board and staff level, I've been fortunate to be working with people who share that principle, that you need to be direct, you need to be frank, you need to be respectful, but don't play games with each other. Don't, you don't, we don't have time. Uh, be, be, be honest and let's use our differences, honest differences to come up with solutions that we can both live with. So in that sense, I think uh, telling the truth, challenging uh, a system that's not right. And um, uh, you know, you, you, can't, you can't go around in any society, not just the U.S., and look at the inequities and say that that's okay. So what are you prepared to do? Are you, st are you able to step up and say this is not right? And yeah. what are you prepared to, what limb are you prepared to go on to correct it? So, and sometimes you have to say that to the very people that fund you, to the very organizations that support you. In my previous job at Urban Edge, there were times that we had to demonstrate against the banks that funded us and financed our projects 
because they were not doing uh, appropriate investment in the communities that were providing their deposits. Or we sometimes demonstrated against the city and state for policies that we felt uh, were not right for the residents we were serving. So, and in, in all cases, our willingness to step out not only did not risk support by the banks and the public uh, agencies, it actually increased the support because they knew they were going to hear the truth from us. I was, a, um, I was fortunate to, uh, early on in Mayor Menino's career, to engage with him and he developed, we developed a friendship and there were times that I would tell him something and he would be upset and ha- you know, slam the phone down. Because he didn't like what he didn't like what I said, but he, he we would talk the next day, and but he knew I was telling him what he needed to hear. So, you know, Moses, because you talk about being a truth teller, and yeah. both to yourself and to others, you're also speaking that you're in between um, people who have great need and people who have great resources. Can you give an example in both ways, uh, Mayor Menino being one that you've already shared? where people had to test, couldn't quite trust that yet. And what are the type of things people did to test your, your, your trustworthiness to be a truth teller? You know, and, 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 and in that testing, you know, um, what were some of your tactics you used to overcome the, the understandable disappointment that people questioned your integrity? So... I have to, I'm not sure that I can think of an example where it was tested. I mean, my experience has been mostly, if you do it respectfully, and it's not like you're just coming out of nowhere, you've had a relationship with whoever it is that you are uh, challenging. So, for example, uh, in the early 90s, uh, both the Boston Redevelopment Authority and the Federal Reserve Bank did studies that showed that the banks were not investing enough in the communities that they were serving. So Urban Edge and five other uh, organizations joined forces in something we call the Community Investment Coalition. And we demonstrated against the banks and we negotiated with them. And eventually we had a series of marathon meetings, some of them at seven in the morning or seven at night. And we developed, and the banks respected us for challenging them, and it led to some major, and I mean, over the 30 or 40 years since then, uh, multi-billion dollar investments in community development, not just in Boston or Massachusetts, in New England. So, uh, you know, in another example, when the state uh, changed the uh, 707 program into a voucher program, we felt that that was going to displace many of the tenants in our developments that we had housed using the 707 subsidy. And we put together a coalition of 12 CDCs and at that time, Mayor Flynn, and we did a press conference and we said, we would rather default on our mortgages than evict a tenant who can't pay their rent because their, their subsidy is now a voucher and it's fixed no matter what their income is. And um, we were risking, obviously, you know, if you default on a mortgage, nobody's going to lend you anybody anymore. But uh, fortunately, what that led to uh, uh, the fact that the state agencies recognized that we had a point and they restructured the loans so that uh, by converting the 707s into vouchers, uh, the loans would still be serviceable and we wouldn't have to displace people because 
they couldn't we couldn't increase their rents to the level they had yeah. to be in order to carry the mortgage. So those are two of many examples I could give where we took a risk, challenged our friends, in one case, the banks, in another case, um, uh, the government. And um, if anything, it increased our uh, stock in, in their yeah. eyes because we, yeah. we, again, that continued to build the trust that we're telling them the truth. We're not just playing games. We're not saying this as a negotiating tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, can you give examples? So you, you've given lots of great examples of how, you know, you focus on caring, building trust, giving the time, being accessible, uh, being a truth teller uh, has been useful in kind of building collaborations and, and trust within a community. Can you give an example of when it did not work? And what do you think drove that? Uh, yes, it's very painful to share this example. So we were invited to our initial target area and our offices at the Dudley end of the Blue Hill Corridor with the Resident Association at the Warren Gardner's Development. It's a 227 unit cooperative. And uh, uh, part of the reason we started where we did was because the resident leaders there found out about higher ground and said, well, why don't you start at our end of the corridor? Because we have a lot of disconnected youth. If teen empowerment comes here, they can help reach out to the youth and we can reduce the violence in the neighborhood. And uh, so that's part of the reason why you ended up where we are. And we found out very quickly that there was a conflict between two boards of directors within the development. There's a uh, co-op housing board, which is the ownership entity. And there's a resident association, which is the nonprofit affiliate that's supposed to raise funds and provide services. And the board, even though they both represent the same 227 residents, they didn't see eye to eye. They had serious issues. And uh, because there were different people on each board, if they disagreed, there was a deadlock about whatever it was gonna happen. And uh, we, at one point, became the sort of election observers for them to elect a board that we encouraged be kind of overlapping between the two boards so that there would be more communication and less conflict. Uh, so early on in our 10-year history or 11-year history, we were seen there as a resource. Then it became clear to us that there were some practices within the development that were, let's say, questionable. Uh, we, we couldn't prove anything, but we were very concerned about some of the complaints we were getting from residents about the way they were treated, about favoritism, about nepotism, and so on. So we raised those questions with uh, both the Mass Housing Finance Agency, which was supposed to be monitoring them, and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, which was financing them. And over several year period, uh, and I remember at the time, City Councilor Tito Jackson advocated with us for changes in management and HUD forced them to change the management agent because they felt that that's where the problem was. We had a couple of residents from the development on our board, on Higher Grounds board, because our, our attitude was, well, if we're gonna be in this community, the residents need to be on our board. Well, they were so upset with us in the role that we had played in trying to hold the leadership of that development accountable to the residents that they both resigned from our board 
And that gradually led to a schism between the leadership of the uh, development and higher ground. And we've basically been asked to butt out uh, for the last several years. The problems there continue. Um, you know, we continue to hear from residents. We continue, we, you know, we connected them with a pro bono attorney so that uh, maybe he could help them uh, with some of their negotiations with HUD. We've made sure that the HUD, mass housing, the city are fully aware. But in the meantime, we've lost what I think an important opportunity to really mobilize the residents uh, to really speak for themselves. And I think it was in part because we decided at some point, I guess about 2014, we decided following a several, almost a year-long strategic planning process that we were going to focus on the schools. So, yeah. and that was, a, that was a handful. So it's not like we had extra time to spare. So I think by uh, deciding that we're going to focus on schools, reducing homelessness, improving educational outcomes, uh, you know, we had to sort of step back from organizing residents, which is what's really yeah. needed over there. We did try to communicate with other organizations that do resident organizing. We tried to get them to connect with the residents, but they either didn't have the capacity or they couldn't get the resources. And uh, the development is still sort of continuing with some uh, occasional calls that we get, which I feel terrible that we're not able to respond. But that that's, I think, the one experience I can give where trying to hold everybody accountable resulted in us uh, not being able to see it through. Now, I'm not giving up on it, but, uh, you know, people know they can still reach us, but it's not something we're actively able to pursue because of our focus on education. You know, it, what, what's remarkable, what I heard in that is this ongoing, the time and energy into building thoughtful, careful, authentic relationships with everyone engaged is yeah. kind of the, a driving force in your success. And then when those relationships don't cohere, that's the example that you're giving of it not working, that not enough people could join around a shared common problem, that they could work collectively. And at that point, things start to fall apart. But as you're suggesting, you're still re ready to give time and attention to it, but you're recognizing that the relationships aren't there at the level necessary to really keep moving forward. Did I hear that correctly? That's correct. That's correct. So, Moza, thank you so much for this. But I have one more question I'd love to ask, which is, given your, you know, the depth of your experience and the breadth of your experience, what advice would you give to your younger self? If you could go back and say, hey... I knew you were going to ask that question from having listened to the previous podcast. So, <laughs> uh, what advice? Uh, I guess early on in my career, I was not as patient as I am now. Uh, on the one hand, I think I would advise my younger self to be more patient. On the other hand, my younger self would probably advise me that I'm I'm too patient now. <laughs> so, so I suspect that the uh, that the solution is somewhere in between. But um, uh, I, I think what drives not just me but the people within Higher Ground and our board and staff is this uh, 
passion to write things that are not right. And uh, it is hard to tell somebody who's homeless that it's okay, they need to continue to be homeless. It's not okay. It's, it's hard to tell some, some family that their children are not succeeding in school because the school system is failing them, but they need to be patient. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, I think inequity is built into the system uh, in many, many ways. Some of it you cannot help. I mean, I'm not tall enough to be a basketball player. I'm not fast enough to run the sprint or the marathon. So there is inequities in terms of what our natural abilities are and what we can do. But inequities that have to do with social constructs or government policy or community practices, those are things that we should not tolerate and we should not be patient about. So I think um, early on uh, for a variety of kind of personal family history reasons, I had learned not to be patient and to be aggressive in, 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 in seeking to write something that was wrong. But I think sometimes, I remember early on in my career at Urban Edge, uh, a city official advised our board chair to send me to etiquette school because I was not deferential enough or polite enough or respectful enough. And I would just sort of ask questions very bluntly. Um, uh, so I probably could have been a little more discreet in the way I communicated early in my career. And maybe now I'm a little too discreet. <laughs> so, well, you know, having been on the other end of your great and direct questionings, the authenticity comes through and it consistently helps me consider what I was saying. And so I always thank you for your directness and your and, and the way in which you were you are authentically present in these conversations. So it's been uh, so I want once again I want to thank you very much for sharing this time with us and and look forward to our continuing work as we try to you know, move the system forward to be more serving of family and children. So thank, thank you and thank you and it's great to be your partner and co-conspirator. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast has made possible the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.